Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome, everybody. Delighted that you could join us today uh, for this webinar on Give Me Liberty or Give Me Safety. A couple of housekeeping matters. So you all filled out a poll uh, when, you, uh, when you entered. Eugene Volokh has already pointed out that this is more of a push poll because none of the above was not an option. But at the end of this, as more people will join, I'll announce what the poll results were. We're also going to have this program be fairly interactive. So while uh, it's going on. As questions occur to you, feel free to type them into the questions tab, and we will try to get to as many of them uh, as we can. Uh, but I'm, my name is John Malcolm. I'm a vice president at the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center at the Heritage Foundation. And I'm delighted to be joined uh, today by Harmeet Dillon and Eugene Volokh, and I will give them both a very brief introduction, and then we will launch into things. So Harmeet is a graduate of uh, Dartmouth College and the University, University of Virginia Law School. Uh, she clerked for Judge Paul Nehemiah on the Fourth Circuit. She is the founder of the Dillon Law Group, which is based in San Francisco, where she's filed a number of high-profile cases uh, involving prominent conservatives who have been attacked figuratively. Uh, and in at least one case, a uh, case involving journalist Andy No, attacked literally uh, for their outspoken views. Uh, prior to starting uh, her own firm, she practiced at various international firms and served as a solicitor for the Supreme Court of England and Wales. She's also a regular contributor to Fox News. She is co-chair of the Republican National Lawyers Association and the CEO of the Center for American Liberty. Eugene Volokh is the Gary T. Schwartz Professor of Law at UCLA Law School where he teaches First Amendment law and runs a First Amendment amicus brief clinic. After a successful career as a computer programmer, Eugene decided to change careers. After graduating from UCLA Law School and before returning there, he clerked for Judge Alex Kaczynski on the Ninth Circuit and for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court. He's the author of several textbooks and roughly 100 law review articles, which have been cited in hundreds of legal opinions and thousands of scholarly articles. He's also argued over 25 appellate cases in courts across the country, and he is, as many of you know, the founder and a frequent contributor to the Volokh Conspiracy, a widely read and very influential legal blog. So with that, let's go ahead and get uh, started. So Eugene, you recently wrote a very interesting and, and somewhat provocative blog in which you said that some recent government actions have clearly challenged your libertarian instincts, but that you think they are justified. Can you explain a little bit why you think that's so? Sure. And I think there are two components uh, to, to this, uh, this point about law and liberty and epidemics. Uh, the first is that freedom of movement and freedom of gathering, tremendously important freedoms without any question. Uh, but they rest on a pretty basic assumption, which is I can walk down the street and I can go to uh, a room and talk to people, and that's pretty safe for them. I'm not going to endanger them that way. Now, of course, some people do endanger others by physical attack, uh, but the way we in a free country deal with that is by saying, look, uh, you can control your own actions, and you um, and if you misbehave, we'll punish you. But we won't restrain everybody uh, who who doesn't misbehave in order to stop the few who do. The trouble with epidemics, especially with epidemics that are uh, which uh, it's transmitted through casual contact, uh, um, is that uh, I'm walking down the street and I'm a, could be a deadly danger to others without their knowing, without my knowing. I walk into 
uh, a room to gather with other people for religious, political, social purposes, I could kill them without trying to, without meaning to, without having any reason to even think that I'm sick. Uh, so, so that challenges this very basic assumption underlying, uh, underlying liberty. And it seems to me justifies restrictions that otherwise would not be justified. So the second component that I think is important here is we're all worried, or we all should be worried, whenever there's a restraint on liberty, that it may become permanent, may broaden, that the government often values restraints on people's liberty and will try to get more of them. That's a very serious risk. Uh, I wrote a 100-page article in the Harvard Law Review on slippery slopes. I'm a big believer in worrying about slippery slopes. I think this risk is at its least when it comes to quarantines and shut-in orders in, during epidemics, partly because they're so burdensome. They're so bad for everybody. Um, uh, and, and the important point is everybody. They don't just target a, a small minority. Uh, they, they end up ba badly interfering with people's liberty and people's economic activity. The government doesn't like that. Among other things, many people in the government want a lot of tax money to spend on their favorite programs. They're not going to get as much tax money if the economy has crashed, right? Um, so one advantage of these kinds of restraints on liberty, or one lower cost of them, is they are in considerable measure self-limiting. You may debate about when they should be lifted and when, when it's not safe. But it's not something like say, well, they instituted a quarantine one year and then it all descended into quarantine tyranny where the nation was quarantined forever. That's just not a viable model for, any, for anybody and everybody knows that. So what I think we have is a situation where there's indubitably huge restraints on liberty being imposed as a result of the epidemic in the form of shutdown and lock-in orders. Uh, uh, I think they, they're something we should try to to stop when when safe to do so, or when it's safer to do so, it's never completely safe. But those are the reasons why I think that these uh, uh, constraints, while huge and very burdensome, are generally, we can debate about particular details, but are generally nonetheless constitutional and quite possibly a good idea, although th there's always an empirical question on such things. So I'll definitely want to get into it with both of you later about your fear of, of some of these edicts and things that we've changed remaining after the pandemic uh, passes. And you just referenced some of them, stay at home orders and closing businesses, et cetera. You know, there are others like technological uh, innovation, surveillance techniques, contact tracing uh, that are now being used or will soon be widely deployed. I'm, I'm curious your views about whether they'll stick around or not. In your article, Eugene, I, just for the purpose of our audience, you used what I thought was a very useful analogy which is you know, normally we punish people if they're carrying a gun if they if they pull out the gun and intentionally fire at somebody unless of course it's in self-defense or something and you analogize this situation to somebody who's walking down the street doesn't even realize that they have a gun and the gun is firing when it feels like it, randomly into the crowd uh and you know i, I think that that paints uh, a, a good visual image. Uh, so, Harmeet, you've you've been involved in several lawsuits uh, challenging the application of some of these stay-at-home orders, particularly when it comes to uh, people's exercise of, of religion. And I noticed in one, I think it was a, a tweet, maybe it was an interview that you did, you referred to some of these actions as fascistic. Uh, so I gather you do not think that our public officials have been striking the right balance between you know, trying to prevent the spread of the pandemic and protecting our civil liberties. Is, is that correct? What's, what's your yeah, view on it? That would, that would definitely be fair to say. And so I agree with everything that Eugene said regarding the framework uh, of analysis. And, uh, but, you know, so just to take the example that you just gave, um, I think the real analogy, at least in some parts of the country, in fact, most of the country, California would be somebody holding a gun, but shooting blanks. Because in fact, the rate of morbidity and certainly mortality as well is extremely low here compared to uh, a hotspot like New York or New Jersey. And so I think that's one problem with the analogy. And there's in fact no critical analysis being applied by any court so far in California and, and, and with mixed results in other parts of the country regarding the premise upon which many, but not all liberties and for most, but not all people have been restricted. And so. Um, I think that's one of the problems. The, another problem is that this conceptual framework is based on more than 100-year-old 
case law that uh, predates the incorporation of the many of the Bill of Rights protections to the states. And so those courts simply were not equipped to apply those analyses. Um, and, you know, at least in one court that I already had a temporary restraining order argument with regard to my challenge of our California government's total ban on communal worship during the course of this uh, shutdown period, the court said no framework should apply under the, uh, the under the um, hundred-year-old Jacobson test because the government said emergency. And, you know, there have been some courts that have applied a rational basis. Some courts have applied a strict scrutiny, uh, including in religion, which typically has a little bit less restriction, less freedom rather under our federal constitutional framework than in the states. So the case law is all over the place. But what really troubles me as a civil libertarian is that uh, the, the governor of any state can apparently say pandemic and, you know, there's no critical analysis of whether the restrictions are overbroad. I think this morning, later this morning, the governor of California is going to announce that all beaches in California are going to be closed. Now, we are learning a lot about this current pandemic every day, but one thing we have learned is that viruses don't survive on beaches and viruses don't survive, uh, you know, distances and viruses don't infect people in the ocean. So, so there's a real logical disconnect between the extremely overbroad and what I would call fascistic crackdown for the sake of crackdowns and punishing people really in California for daring to stray out of the confines that the governor has set. And I think we are going to be seeing massive uh, civil resistance here. As I explained to the court in the Gish case in San Bernardino County, um, if you have unreasonable and overbroad restrictions like this and really impose these externalities on everybody way beyond what the logic, the science, and practicality dictates, you will have massive civil disobedience and that may actually engender infection. So for example, if we are forcing people of faith to worship secretly in homes as opposed to, as we proposed to the court, socially distanced in a large church, uh, that could in fact be more dangerous than in fact having some reasonable restrictions. And so, you know, I will be appealing these cases and we do intend to pursue them because at some point, hopefully I'll hit a judge who realizes that where you have virtually no deaths in California and very low or very high infection rate, but very low morbidity or mortality, uh, really the scope of these orders is totally unjustified and that I'm not even getting into the business cases. We can talk about those as well. So just for the sake of our audience, you made reference to the Jacobson case. That was a, a, a case, mm -hmm. 1905 case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. So in Massachusetts at the time, there was a smallpox uh, epidemic going on uh, and the legislature passed a bill and the governor authorized uh, mandatory vaccinations. Uh, there was a, a, a preacher and a community leader who had come from Sweden where they had had a similar epidemic uh, and he didn't want to be uh, vaccinated. There were criminal penalties attached to this. He was actually prosecuted and he was fined. And he then filed an action challenging the constitutionality of the mandatory vaccines. And Eugene will correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it was, I think, a seven to two vote. The Supreme Court said, no, there are certain public emergencies that can justify even an invasive procedure like uh, a mandatory vaccination, uh, even though it clearly would violate somebody's bodily integrity uh, receiving the vaccine, and even though you're arguably creating a risk of death because what you're, you're injecting is a small portion of the, uh, the virus itself in the hopes that the body will develop an immunity. Uh, and so that's, that's the case that has been largely cited uh, to justify a lot of these, you know, very, very serious orders that have been imposed by governors and state and local officials. I'm curious, Eugene, whether you agree with Harmeet's assessment of things. Uh, well, um, I agree that there needs to be constitutional scrutiny. I actually do agree with the courts that that scrutiny has to be relaxed quite a lot in the epidemic context, one way or the other. You can imagine all sorts of doctrinal approaches we can talk about them later. I don't agree with the judgment that just because California has indeed a very low uh, infection rate, uh, and I should, should, shouldn't say a very low infection rate, very low death rate. That's really all we really know. We don't actually know the infection rate. But we do have a pretty good sense of the death rate. It's about 30 per million, one per 30,000. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, that, that, that's a material, it's a considerable number of deaths, but that is indeed uh, uh, 
quite low compared to New York, which is 1,200 per million. So that's one in a thousand New Yorkers just over the span of the last two weeks have died as a result of coronavirus, as best we can tell. Now, it's so, so we are a lot safer, and part of it may just be because of the physical geography of New York, New York City, everything's so carefully put together. But if you look at Massachusetts, which of course has a big city, Boston, but also a lot of rural and suburban areas, there the death rate is 500 per million. So that's 15 times more than California. So there are two possible approaches to this. Uh, one is to say, well, look, uh, this, it, things are a lot less dangerous here. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Less desperate times call for less desperate measures. So maybe in a state where there's very uh, a relatively low level of death, then you should have less burdensome restrictions. Another possibility is to say, you know, there doesn't seem anything magical about California that makes it radically different from Massachusetts or Michigan, let's say, another state that has a lot of um, a, a lot of deaths, Louisiana. Uh, except maybe what happened was we got lucky the first time that there wasn't that much infection in the first place. We shut things down quickly, and now as a result, we are seeing the benefits of that. And if we loosen all of this, then the consequence may very well be a lot more transmission and death rates comparable to those on the East Coast. Uh, so, or the or East Coast, basically, the, the Northeast is where the, the, the biggest hotspot is. Um, so, so those are two interesting uh, um, uh, kind of two possible theories. And then there's this meta question, which is who decides? Should it be up to courts to say, well, we think based on the expert evidence that's presented that the best approach to maximize liberty uh, but at the same time maximize safety uh, is to, ha to have a more limited shutdown? Or should this be something that is left to the governor pursuant to delegation from the legislature? There has to be a statutory delegation. Uh, or to the legislature, if the legislature wants to, to track these things itself. The view of the Jacobson case was at the very least where there's really credible uh, argument in favor of a, of a particular quite burdensome but, but still uh, seemingly uh, a reasonable uh, medical solution, um, uh, then, uh, then that is left to the political process, generally speaking. And courts aren't going to go in there during this emergency to second guess what is the optimal way of solving the problem. Uh, so that, that's the Jacobson model. It may actually be different under some statutes. For example, you might say that a state Religious Freedom Restoration Act might be a legislative judgment that it should be more up to the courts. Interesting question. But I think as a constitutional matter, it's pretty sensible that courts say that in these kinds of situations, we leave this judgment about, again, is it that we are we have low death rate in California, therefore it's okay to open things up. In fact, there's a constitutional imperative to open things up, or we have a low death rate because we shut things down quickly and we want to keep that low death rate. That judgment is, I think, generally speaking for uh, for the executive branch and for the legislature and not generally speaking for judges. So I want to ask you both at, at some point about how you think the courts uh, have been doing as a general matter, but, but you do hit on one point, Eugene, that I must say has struck me, which is sometimes, you know, conservatives will, will decry what they perceive as judicial activism in terms of judges wanting to act as lawmakers because they have policy disagreements with, uh, with what uh, a legislature and executive branch official has does, done and they substitute that. But I think that they are going to be and have so far been much more reluctant to designate themselves as health experts uh, in order to overrule judgments that are based on uh, the medical opinions of experts. And I'm curious whether you, know, you both think that something like that might be going on too. Well, if, if I can address that, um, I think Eugene makes a number of interesting points. But in fact, you know, if, if neither, neither of us is an expert on health policy or epidemiology, but uh, even the top experts in the country have given widely disparate analyses based on evolving facts here. And certainly the governor of California is no health expert. And so uh, I think it would be very speculative at this point for anybody to say that we have a low death rate in California because of the shutdown. I don't think the science will necessarily bear that out. Um, you know, there are certainly variations in jurisdictions among density, but even there, in the most dense areas of California, Los Angeles and San Francisco, uh, the, the death rate is an order of magnitude below what it is in the East Coast. And then finally, I think one of the issues that we're having and grappling with in terms of a rising tide of civil disobedience that I'm experiencing as a lawyer being asked to help uh, on these issues 
is uh, there is a lack of credibility in the government statistics, uh, and that is flowing out of perhaps a desire to overcount uh, death rates or attribute death to this disease that may not, in fact, be an accurate uh, assessment of, of the cause of death. And you know, I think we all have seen evidence about that in, in what we've experienced through the media for what that's worth. But taking Eugene's position and the position of some of these older courts and even the position of uh, some of the recent courts to the, its logical extreme, what the government authorities in Wuhan, China did in order to, you know, what they thought was a rational way to stop the spread of this disease was in fact, allegedly lock some people who were infected into their homes to physically restrain them from leaving. And those people died. And, you know, of course, in China being a totalitarian country, unlike ours, that was considered apparently to be an acceptable method of stopping the spread of the disease. However, we're in America and that would not be acceptable here unless a court refuses to step in, unless a court gives absolute and total deference to a governor. Now, interestingly, again, looking at our most populous state in the country, California, we have a public health law, and that public health law is the basis from which the governor derives his authority and the police power to govern us in this regard. And when you go look at that health law, it does not seem to provide for the mass quarantining of healthy people. In fact, it provides for the quarantining of people who are ill or who can be shown to have been exposed to a deadly and communicable disease. Those factors do not occur for most of the 40 million people in California. And to date, nobody has brought a frontal challenge to that specific point. And I think that frontal challenge is gonna be coming very shortly because the right of the governor to prevent people from being in places like parks or like open spaces where they're not in any, by any epidemiologist or medical opinion within a communicable range of another person, I don't think that exists. And so I think pretty soon we're gonna be seeing some judge begin to question the governor's right to do this. And, and again, we're not even getting into a host of other uh, constitutional issues of uh, regulatory takings of business property um, I think even if you go back to even the restrictive Jacobson framework and the cases that come under it, um, uh, the, the government uh, simply picking and choosing winners. So, so in Eugene's first comment, he noted that the uh, shared pain of a shutdown like this uh, will be self-limiting. But in fact, we don't have a shared pain. In every one of these jurisdictions, the government has morphed to picking essential and non-essential businesses. And in California, again, and in other populous states, that means there are literally millions of workers who are allowed to go to their jobs every day. Those workers include marijuana shop operators and alcohol shop operators and laundromat operators. And I don't think there's necessarily a rational basis between the winners and losers that the government has selected. So that is why you are seeing rising uh, unrest in these populations because there, frankly, is not a rational basis between who is allowed to operate and who isn't. So you've actually raised several uh, issues, Harmeet. I, I want to get to the, uh, defer for the moment, the issue about how to address the protests that have started and I predict will increase over the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, but you, you did raise two other issues. One, you talked about sort of regulatory takings, and I'm curious to get people's take on that. I mean, you have you know, non-eviction uh, orders that are being imposed or rent freezes or rent moratoriums that are being uh, declared on, on property owners. You also raise the whole issue of these somewhat inconsistent, shall we say, designations of what is an essential business or a non-essential business. So in some states, gun stores uh, and abortion clinics, other medical providers for voluntary uh, procedures or non-emergency non procedures have been deemed non-essential, but liquor stores, you know, massage therapists, medical marijuana dispensaries, uh, they have been declared essential businesses uh, in other places. And so I'm, I'm curious to get both of your take and sort of what are the constitutional dimensions of these seeming takings and, and these business designations and you know, are, people, are people getting it right? What do you all think on that? So, um, yeah, I think there are two important uh, distinctions here, uh, or two, two important kinds of questions here. One is, what do you do about the economic burden that this imposes? And this imposes it on uh, 
on business owners, you know, it imposes it on employees too, who are basically being denied the right to work and to make a living if they're not one of the essential businesses. The general answer, as I understand it, I'm not a takings expert, the general answer is that uh, uh, first, these are would generally be treated as regulatory takings. In other words, they interfere with the use of property as a result of regulation. And especially when they are temporary, uh, they are not viewed as, uh, uh, as leading to an obligation to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, compensate. Uh, uh, now, it may be a good idea to compensate in various ways, and I think the government is probably trying to do that in some measure with some various stimulus programs, loans, and the like. But, uh, but my understanding, and this isn't just me, it's Ilya Solomon, my co-blogger, who's probably one of the, uh, has the broadest views of, of uh, pretty much any academic I know when it comes to the takings clause, even he says, under existing case law, there's no obligation. And that's actually true in some respects with emergencies, even as to physical takings. There are cases which make quite clear, a long line of cases which say, if you're fighting a fire, you can burn somebody's property and you don't have to compensate them. My sense is probably many governments do because it's the fair thing to do to make sure that the burden uh, is shared rather than just happens to fall on these poor unfortunate property owners. Uh, but, uh, but that's the general rule. So as a predictive matter, I doubt that the takings challenges will go far. Now, what about, what about this uh, uh, unevenness of treatment with regard to what's essential and what's not? Generally speaking, it seems to me, this is just part of the broader problem that whenever you classify things, for tax purposes, for regulatory purposes, for all sorts of purposes, there are going to be cases that are closed on the line. Nobody thinks supermarkets are in non-essential. Nobody thinks, at least as best I can tell, that tattoo parlors, to give an example of something that's being opened up, but it was opened up because it was closed because it was. Uh, uh, labeled non-essential. Um, so, so nobody thinks that they should be labeled essential. Lots and lots of things in those categories. Then you get to closer questions. Laundromats, I think my understanding is it's because it's a health matter, right? If you, if, if you for months on end, don't wash your clothes, then that may spread disease. Um, uh, marijuana dispensaries are easy to laugh at, but my understanding is uh, that uh, it simply stems from this many places decades long or at least years long judgment that marijuana has medical properties and marijuana is a form of pharmaceutical. Now you that you might agree or disagree or you might think the bottom line is very few people who voted for medical marijuana really wanted it for medical purposes enough to be swing votes but not that many. It could be kind of something to laugh at a little bit but we know the way this the legal system works. Once you categorize something in one category, it becomes really easy to use that category. You've got to make a decision on the spot and, and you draw the lines that have already been drawn. So in jurisdictions that view marijuana as a form of pharmaceutical, at least in part, um, they're treated the same way as pharmacies. It's, it's not irrational. It may not be the best way to draw the line, but it's not irrational. Likewise, liquor stores, my understanding, at least one argument that's been made, is for people who are addicted to liquor. If you do not provide them with liquor, this could actually cause huge health problems. Uh, so maybe you should have it not in liquor stores, maybe it should be in supermarkets, although the question is, would you want people to go to the supermarket for liquor? Rather than that? But in any case, they're interesting questions, but there's nothing, it seems to me, irrational under the equal protection rational basis test here. Uh, I think these lines are probably going to be, uh, uh, they can be challenged in lots of situations, challenged politically, I don't think they're going to be successfully challenged legally. Now, one interesting question that does arise is to what extent do, do, do this unequal treatment, uh, to what extent might it matter in peculiar cases where we've got heightened scrutiny and the argument is the law is under-inclusive. And the classic example is in those states that have religious freedom restoration acts or similar state constitutional regimes, that's 30 of the 50 states basically, uh, where burdens on religious practice are subject to strict scrutiny. And one thing we know in strict scrutiny cases that often happens is, is the challengers say, look, uh, you're being under-inclusive. You claim there's this compelling interest, but you're not really serving it even-handedly. And therefore, we want, we want the law struck down, or at least an exemption crafted for us, so we're treated as well as your most favored, uh, 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 most favored cat. That's an interesting question. I've seen it come up in some of these cases. I'm inclined to say that that, that should only go so far that if indeed, for example, large gatherings generally are allowed, religious gatherings shouldn't, uh, uh, shouldn't be 
banned then. So religious gatherings should be treated the same way that other large gatherings. But I wouldn't treat an open supermarket the same way that I would treat a church because people go into the supermarket and generally leave pretty quickly. And generally there's little temptation to hang out with, with friends in a supermarket. Whereas in a church, it often lasts longer and there is more kind of a social gravity pulling people together even when they know they should be apart. So I would not uh, view uh, those as analogous in that respect. But it's a, it's a plausible argument that some courts have accepted that some of the time, especially if, for example, the church is a classic example is a drive-through church or a drive-in church, excuse me. The church is really having a drive-in service and lots of other drive-ins are allowed then that becomes much more plausible to say that uh, the church should be treated as well as the other uh, exempt businesses. So I want to give Harmeet a chance to, to respond, uh, but I, I got a very interesting question that ties into this. Uh, so I'll, I'll read it to you, uh, and then Harmeet, you can respond how you want. So uh, the question is, does either panelist believe that inherent in the liberties, it's a due process, privileges, and immunities question. Does either panelist believe that inherent in the liberty that is protected by the 14th Amendment is a citizen's right to support him or herself economically? In other words, are there individual and maybe even fundamental rights at issue in addition to any business rights which are likely governed by regular, regulatory takings doctrines? So Armit, you can take, take that and, and respond to Eugene, and then Eugene, if you want to weigh in on the, the 14th Amendment issue, uh, then we can move on. Well, uh, yeah, so Eugene uh, covered a, a lot of ground there, and I'm uh, you know, going to come back to the issue that this is an unprecedented, uh, I, I agree it's a temporary regulatory takings, but in our jurisprudence, we have yet to see a takings of this nature that covers entire states, entire uh, country in various regards. And uh, increasingly in some jurisdictions, as I said, begins to pick uh, winners and losers. And I don't think this is going to stand up in court where you are telling some regulated entities. I mean, just last week, stepping back, when I argued the religion uh, case in, uh, in the federal district court in, in Los Angeles area regarding, um, regarding the justification. And so to the classification point, I disagree with the concept that uh, allowing unlimited time duration at a Costco, which has also an unlimited number of people who can be in there at any given time, uh, is rational when you are imposing specific orders that mention religion and limit religion. So the governor of California, for an example, has said, if you wish to worship in California, you may only do so through the following method. Uh, somebody can go to your church, less than 10 people, and put on a broadcast performance and everybody else worship in your home. Uh, but that is a classification that classifies religion at a lower level of importance than other aspects of our lives. People are allowed to go jogging. People are allowed to hang out in Costco if they want. In fact, I think you're gonna see more and more people doing that. I even suggested to one of my pastor clients that it'll be perfectly legal for him and his flock to go into the Costco and stand six feet apart and hold a service there under the current regulatory regime we have in California, whereas they could be arrested for doing that outdoors in a park or in their church. So this is illogical and irrational, and I think at some point it's not going to stand. And that also goes to the regulatory takings issue. And you know, those of us who practice civil rights law are aware that the, uh, that the world we live in, and even in our wonderful country that protects civil rights more than any other country, there is this concept of these uh, externalities being imposed on the few when in fact the benefit is for the for all. Qualified immunity is an example of this in the case of the government uh, breaking into the wrong home and taking your stuff or breaking down your door and shooting your dog by mistake. And it turns out that it was the neighbor that they were trying to reach. Well, unfortunately, uh, most of the time the poor sucker whose dog got shot is kind of stuck with that. Um, or their door is broken down. So, you know, I, I think that's something that should change. And I think indeed uh, there are some noises about that. But here as well, you are really imposing the burdens of this um, enforcement endeavor on the few. To give the real estate example that is a particularly acute in some of these more liberal jurisdictions, where there's already a desire to limit the rights of property owners to enjoy their property freely, they're the first people who get attacked in this situation. And the government says, we would like to make sure people aren't living on the streets and aren't homeless, so we're gonna impose that burden on the few. That is unfair. Uh, that I think is going to be definitely the subject of years of litigation here. 
Um, so I, I don't think the existing legal framework that we have used to discuss smallpox situations or fires or hurricanes or fleeting temporary nature-based situations is necessarily going to neatly fit in a regime where governors are saying, if you're a nail salon or you're a hair salon, by the way, you're a regulated business, you have training on cleanliness, you must be inspected and, and have all of those things that the government says justifies grocery stores or other regulated entities and being allowed to operate in our restaurants, um, but you can't. Uh, so I, these cases are being filed. I will be filing more cases like this. I have in fact filed for, for businesses because I don't think that the, um, that, that the facts justify this type of a sweeping takings from some and not from others. And certainly what the government is handing out to business owners like myself is a, a mere fraction of the costs that are going to be imposed ultimately. So, so I think that's, that's, that's the problems I see with the framework that we have. Now, on the Equal Protection 14th Amendment, it's an interesting question. Um, again, we haven't had a situation before where everybody is told, actually not everybody, 80% of people are told they have to stay home and they can't work. Uh, we have this in increasing gig economy in California, so there are many people who work for themselves as independent contractors. They can't work unless they're driving a car, delivering, delivering pizzas. Uh, so I don't think the current case law, to my knowledge, uh, really is robustly developed to say that you have a fundamental right, going back to the original points that uh, Eugene made, which are consistent with my understanding regarding uh, a crisis situation. No, you don't have a right to go out and work and do whatever you want. So what really comes down to is a court, at what point is a court going to be willing to test the government's blanket position? Like I think the, this case of the governor saying, uh, how dare you guys go outdoors in the sunlight, which by the way, kills viruses and stay six feet apart and enjoy yourself. I think that's really going to be challenged at some point because it doesn't hold up to logic. And I, one more point I want to make is that while one might think of this, and just to be fair, one might think of this as a red state versus blue state issue. In fact, the Jacobson analysis that, that has been used to suspend uh, otherwise applicable civil rights has been used on both sides of the equation here in this crisis. And the Fifth Circuit has upheld Texas's ban on elective abortions, uh, which a district court said was unconstitutional under the Jacobson test. So. Uh, you know, I guess the way you might look at it, it depends on whose ox is being gored. I don't like it being used in California, the Ninth Circuit, to shut down the right of people to worship freely with using social distancing, but so would the Planned Parenthood folks in Texas have the same dim view of the application of this, I think, outdated precedent to uh, impose it on this current framework. Eugene, I'm curious, just to get your quick take on the question about the 14th Amendment or do you think this is just an attempt to revive Lochner that isn't going to go anywhere? Oh, I think it's a, a, a uh, as a normative matter, I think it's a very powerful argument. That's one reason I oppose a minimum wage laws, that if there's a minimum wage of $15 an hour and somebody doesn't have a skill that's worth $15 an hour to anybody, but has a skill worth $12 an hour to people, the minimum wage basically says you're not allowed to sell your labor for the only way that, that you can. I think that's bad, but the courts say that's for the political process. That's for the political wow. process even in the absence of an epidemic, even more so here, it seems to me. But if I could just respond a little bit to one thing that Hermita said, the thing that makes this such a horrible thing for the whole country, for our economy, is precisely this isn't being imposed just on a few. It's being imposed on the majority, as I understand it, of businesses, if not the majority in some places, at least a, a, a large, large minority, but my guess is a majority. In fact, if you're going to have takings, it's going to, the classic example of takings is, you know, we, we uh, seize uh, 10 plots of land for the benefit of a thousand. Isn't it fair to have that be all spread out? And it's also not that inefficient to, to do that kind of transfer. In fact, maybe economically more efficient to do that. Here, if we are going to have a takings challenge, it's going to be takings challenges brought by probably the, ma the majority of business owners uh, and is going to require the transfer through the courts and through lawyers of trillions of dollars worth of assets. Maybe that's the fair thing to do. We've got to keep in mind that that's going to be a very burdensome uh, system if that's what happens. So this is not about burdens on the few, nor is it burdens that single out religion as such. Um, uh, uh, the uh, 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 restrictions on worship services are a special case, albeit a very important special case, of restrictions on gathering more generally. 
if indeed somebody could have a political rally inside a building but couldn't have a religious rally inside a building, or could have a dance inside a building but couldn't have a, a religious rally, religious worship service inside a building, uh, that would be clearly unconstitutional discrimination under the free exercise clause. But uh, uh, but these do apply to, to gatherings generally. Uh, and then there's a separate question of should we have, again, more relaxed rules with regard to beaches? And it's true that on beaches, probably the risk is, is less of transmission. At the same time, the virus may die quickly, but if I cough at you or if I shout at you, and especially if there's a breeze coming and it may transfer the, um, uh, transfer the particles, uh, then that might you, it might be contagious to you. How contagious? We don't actually know for sure. Uh, but it's not ridiculous, it seems to me, to say that large gatherings at beaches, which, where it's probably pretty difficult to really effectively maintain social distancing, especially people constantly coming and going, somebody drives an hour to the beach, the beach seems full, are they just going to drive home or are they going to park somewhere or are they going to walk over even in a situation that isn't entirely safe? That, it seems to me, is a plausible, uh, difficult judgment call. But that's the that's the small part of the matter. The real problem, I guess, again, that's facing the country is precisely this is a burden that's imposed on the many. And as a result, the economy is tanking and tax revenues are tanking and it's bad for everybody, including the government. Uh, so so that's the problem. And I'm not sure the courts are going to are going to uh, help us with it. Well, if, so if I could just I'm respond actually, briefly to that, yeah, uh, it, it, it really isn't being imposed on everybody. Uh, in fact, most of the lower wage workers in our country are, many of them are making more money right now than they were uh, when they were working. That's just the math. That is, uh, that is when you add up the numbers of our federal stimulus and our unemployment benefits in the states, it is business owners who are really feeling the brunt of this burden because they are having to, the, the government has imposed on them the cost of, uh, of paid leave for workers who are either even sick or caring for somebody with coronavirus or having you know, childcare issues related to coronavirus. So, so it is actually very disproportionate and I think that's what's gonna be increasingly reflected in. And yes, there will be political pressure out of that because who pays politicians and who helps them run their campaigns? It is business owners. So, so in fact, uh, you know, I, I disagree with the analysis that it is equally falling on everybody. Everybody is not being deprived of their uh, right. you know, wages or their income. Most of them, most people are being paid, in fact, right now, not so business if, owners. If I said everybody, I was speaking hyperbolically. In the majority of businesses are, are at least affected. Uh, and the, and I, my sense is the majority of workers, or at least a very, very large number of workers are affected. And the burden, it seems to me, is is at least as great on employees. Every business that's shuttered is workers that are not coming to work. Now, a few of them may have paid leave. It's a small number of, of, of them that have paid leave. And I don't think they should have paid leave. Uh, and if they didn't have paid leave, the business would go out of business and then they'd be out of work. But to say, if, I mean, it seems to me it's not right to say that this is something that is borne disproportionately by business owners compared to workers. In fact, for many of the workers, this is the livelihoods. They don't have a livelihood anymore. Uh, that, no, but that's not true. Uh, They're all getting unemployment insurance. So that's just not true, factually. Well, okay. so, so yes, they're getting unemployment compensation. Very few people want unemployment compensation. Some people might because unemployment may sometimes be pegged too high. But for most people, unemployment compensation is not an adequate uh, substitute. It's not the same as their salary. What's more, many of them, precisely because businesses go out of business, they won't have a job to return to. So this is, this is not something that somehow is just targeting businesses and employees are sitting pretty because they're getting unemployment. I, I don't see how that's so. So I nobody said sitting pretty, but 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 we do not have a symmetrical impact of this situation as of today. Now when unemployment runs out in a few weeks or months for some people, there will be a different conversation. But uh, it, is, it is highly asymmetric. Well, many business owners also have more assets than the typical worker who needs who needs unemployment. Not all, not all. Certainly, some are going to go go bankrupt. Some employees are going to go bankrupt. It, it, this this isn't sort of well. The poor, the rich are getting soaked, and and the poor are not bearing the burden. It seems to me that that, that everybody's bearing the burden. And in fact, many of the rich people, or even middle class people, are a little bit find it a little bit easier to bear the burden, although their burden is unquestionably high.
So I've received a couple of questions that are, are both, they're tied up in a question that I was going to, to ask and, and it sort of feeds actually into the debate we've just been having. So Harmeet referenced this, referenced this already. Then we started to see people who have been protesting uh, in some states, they are, it invokes, you know, sort of your right to petition for redress of grievances and, and to associate with each other, peaceful assembly. Some of these protests, in fact, many of them have been stopped, uh, in which people have demanded that public officials start to relax some of these stay-at-home orders and business closures. Virginia's health commissioner recently stated that some businesses in the Commonwealth may need to stay closed for up to two years. So as time passes and the virus starts to recede, hopefully permanently, although a big unknown, does the calculus start to change in terms of assessing the constitutionality of restrictions by, imposed by public officials that curb people's right to work, uh, engage in recreational activities, or in, you know, interact with each other without regard to social distancing guidelines? Uh, well, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll start. It, it, it has to change. It will change. And so will the political pressure on there's There's no way that that, you know, county or that state is going to stay shut for two years. There will be a violent revolution in that state, I would predict. It, 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 you know, the, those days are coming. Even in, you know, peaceful areas here in California, we have political figures who are leaders in communities uh, that say, there are no cases in my county, there are no cases in the adjoining county, nobody died in this entire period in our area, uh, governor, open us up. And I think you're going to see that. In fact, I've been contacted by several local officials who have an interest in legal action. And so there is going to be a political clash even within these jurisdictions regarding that. And I, 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 I stay with my position that vaccine cases in which the few sought to exempt themselves from a uh, situation that affected the many. I think you have the opposite here. You have the many and the majority of people, certainly who I'm aware of, who uh, you know have contacted me, uh, believe that the burdens being imposed by the government where I live uh, are vastly disproportionate to the health risk. And to be clear, uh, I'm not talking to irrational people who you know would like to jump off a bridge or die unnecessarily. I think everybody has a self-preservation goal, but but there is a balance. And so for every person who's, every governor who says you might, uh, you know, catch uh, coronavirus uh, through being sneezed on at the beach, of which there is, by the way, zero documented cases, uh, there are people dying of morbidity from being locked inside their homes. I mean, in fact, the majority, more than half the cases in uh, many states, including this state in California, are from nursing homes, from people who are un unfortunately limited mobility and locked into a death trap. And so I think uh, you're going to see civil disobedience just for the purpose of preservation of life. And, uh, and I think very soon we're going to outrun that tide. And th some of these restrictions are taking on a punitive measure. And, you know, Eugene used the colorful phrase of soaking the rich. You know, there are vacation communities in the East Coast, which the you know mean town managers are refusing to allow power and electricity to be hooked up to uh, summer homes. And you know many would say, and a court might find that allowing people to get out of a crowded city and into a, a rural area where they can have fresh air is actually better for overall health than than the opposite. And at some point, uh, this will be tested in court. Well, so before you respond, Eugene, because I know you're going to want to. So. Should courts view the, these constitutional challenges differently, either in some of the locations that you referenced, Harmeet, where you know, the pandemic is, uh, is less of a problem, it's a problem everywhere, but less of a problem than, say, New York City. Uh, and, and similarly, as time passes, and you know, we're past the peak and, and things appear to recede, should courts, uh, uh, take that into consideration when assessing the constitutionality of these actions, or should they leave well enough alone and say, again, you know, we're not doctors, we don't know what the course of this virus is going to be until there's a vaccine, we wash our hands of the whole thing. So you, Eugene, why don't you weigh in on that, and then Harmeen, you can comment again if you wish. Wash the hands with, with soap and hot water. Uh, so, um, so I think that uh, uh, I agree with Harmeet that the, there are going to be huge political pressures to lift things as soon as it appears pretty safe to lift, and maybe even before that. Maybe that's right. Maybe we should lift it before it seems perfectly safe, because nothing's perfectly safe. 
Um, so I doubt that there will be situations where a court, and not just one judge, but ultimately something that, that's affirmed by, say, the state Supreme Court or by the circuit, federal circuit court, uh, uh, gets out in front of the political process here. I think that uh, uh, what we're going to see is as the risk declines, things are going to open up. And uh, uh, generally speaking, the courts aren't going to open them up before that. You could imagine a situation in which in some state, let's say, there's some, some prohibition on mass gatherings, or maybe the mass gatherings of more than 100 people. So at least a considerable number of churches would be exempt, or more than 500 people. And they end up targeting only a small group of either religious or political institutions. And that for whatever reason, they're not going to get repealed. Uh, um, and then maybe once the, uh, the death rate from this becomes next to nil, maybe at that point uh, uh, a court will step in. I, I just don't think it's terribly likely. I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a wave of, uh, uh, of uh, political action to, to roll this back, uh, quite rightly, I think, uh, uh, in general, although maybe sometimes a little too early, a little too late. I don't think courts are going to step in and say, well, you know, lots of other states still have have the constraints up. There's lots of good arguments that the constraints should be up, but I, the judge, think that I know better. I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think it's going to happen that courts are going to say, oh, well, you know, there's still a lot of deaths the next state over, or a few states over, but relatively few here. So that's what, uh, uh, what makes this unnecessary because uh, we're in a highly interconnected society and interconnected economy. People travel all the time. So I think courts recognize that and would be reluctant to step out again out in front of the political process, uh, which is driven by the elected representatives of the people and probably has a little bit more by way of medical advice, albeit, of course, imperfect medical advice. We've seen how medical professionals have erred in this and have changed their views, and perhaps rightly changed their views, but maybe had the wrong views unfortunately at the outset this is a huge problem but this is a reality of life that i that uh, i don't think should lead to courts just saying well the medical professionals are imperfect so we even more imperfect we should be the ones making these decisions so we have well, some judges some judges aren't that. So, you know, uh, in, in cases, so, I mean, not to get too deep into the weeds of the case law, I would agree that the protections for religion after uh, the Smith case from the United States Supreme Court are somewhat less than some of the other First Amendment grounds, but uh, the Center for American Liberty, um, which, uh, you know, I founded, has filed a lawsuit on behalf of protesters in the state capitol. So uh, their protests were allowed, permits were allowed here in California, and uh, the governor saw these protests in the state capitol and he didn't like it. So he ordered the highway patrol to issue no more permits for protests. Um, and so there's no attempt to tailor, there's no attempt to accommodate for the social distancing protocols that the governor and the president and everybody else who's addressed this issue politically have said are the best way to go. Simply a blanket ban on all assembly, protest, petition of the government in the state capitol. I, I, I do not think these types of you know, decrees are necessarily going to, to hold up uh, over time. And so it's, I think we're gonna see more and more judges say, these are not narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling government interest eight weeks after this thing started and where the curve has been flattened and it's going down, uh, the, the blanket bans on protest are, are unconstitutional, I hope. The curve has been flattened at 2,000 deaths a day. That's, you know, it's not Out small. Of 40 million. And questions about the assignment of the COVID per reason for the death. That's a huge problem as well. Right. You could have huge questions about that because the bottom line is often people die and uh, uh, and uh, the, we, have a, we have a sense of the likely diagnosis. We don't know for sure. There's no doubt about that. That's not materially affecting the overall volume. We, we only have a few minutes left. And no, 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 go on. John, let me, let me turn, uh, turn things back to you. Well, I, I just have, so I have one question that I want to ask. And, and so I would also just announce the, the, the poll results are actually pretty close, except for it seems only 2% of the people who responded are concerned about travel restrictions. Uh, but Harmeet, you'll be, you'll, might be heartened to hear this. The highest number, 29% are concerned about religious service bans, 27% about business shutdowns, 24% about firearm sales bans uh, and 
stay-at-home orders. Only only two percent are uh, are concerned about travel restrictions. So, so here's an interesting question. This, this struck me the other day because obviously we're concerned about the economy reopening cautiously, or you know, we'll, we'll see. But on Monday, the Attorney General Bill Barr, you know, issued a memorandum to all 94 U.S. attorneys talking about the fact that civil liberties are still important to protect. Uh, uh, during this pandemic. And he talked about how the Constitution prohibits discrimination against religious institutions and believers. And he said uh, it also uh, uh, prohibits uh, discriminating against disfavored speech. And then he added the following. He said, in certain circumstances, he said it also prohibits, quote, undue interference with the national economy. So that's a, sort of a clear reference to the so-called dormant commerce clause. And I'm just curious to get your take when it comes to reopening the economy, you know, where's the line between federal authority and the president's authority and, and state and local officials in terms of how and how rapidly we get back to business? Well, if, if I can start, I would say, I think uh, as a fundamental premise, we want to leave as much of those decisions to the states and to local authorities. So uh, while the sentiment expressed in the entire memo that you just referenced is a nice one. I kind of roll my eyes to a certain degree because these types of pronouncements out of Washington, you know, don't necessarily translate into liberty in the states. I'll tell you that as a 28-year practitioner of, of civil rights law. But in, um, you know, certainly I would love to see some more of the uh, courts uh, kind of... Uh, kind of taking a firmer hand on all of these liberty-related issues. I think Eugene is certainly correct that in general, at the beginning of any one of these crises, and these crises are usually fleeting, much shorter than what we are looking at now. People are talking about six months, two years. Um, you know, these are, these are over, and they usually involve a couple of recalcitrant people who don't want to comply with otherwise reasonable health guidelines. Uh, this is a very different situation than that. Uh, I think governors and local officials are using this crisis for their own political agenda and, and, and frankly taking advantage of it. I think that is happening with housing, that is gonna happen with green energy issues. It is happening for another lawsuit that I filed regarding giving tax benefits to illegal aliens who are not entitled to unemployment benefits. That is, a, that is gonna be a big political issue. So I don't think the courts are necessarily gonna be resolving those issues. Those really are going to be resolved more on a political basis, other than when governors overstep their grounds. I think this problem of governors imposing health bans that restrict our freedom, our right to worship, assemble, petition, own, a, own our property and enjoy our property and earn a living where the state health code doesn't permit the punishment or quarantining or segregation of people who aren't sick or infected or exposed, that will be tested in the courts, I think, much more rapidly than some of these these nice constitutional theories. Eugene? Uh, so I think the clearest example of uh, something that might violate the Commerce Clause uh, that states, uh, um, uh, if done excessively by states, is uh, limits on interstate travel. So there, there is talk, and I think various states have set up checkpoints from uh, uh, if either checkpoints at borders or something similar to try to make sure that people from out of state, where especially the neighboring state has a huge infection rate, uh, don't come in. Uh, that's something that's generally unconstitutional. It generally violates the Commerce Clause. Uh, in times of epidemic, that is something that states have historically been allowed to do. But it may well be that at some point that becomes excessive and there, at least in principle, there needs to be a decision as to whether it's excessive or not. But again, I think it will ultimately happen through the political process. Um, uh, let me just close just with one thing. I, I looked this up right now. Unemployment compensation in California, the maximum is $450 a week. So we're talking, so $450 a week for, for however long it lasts, which isn't going to be indefinitely. Uh, that's uh, that would be for people who are earning good good deal more than that. If you're earning, let's say, fifty thousand uh, dollars a year, your unemployment compensation is uh, is basically going to be half that, and maybe a little less. If you're earning twenty thousand dollars a year, the unemployment compensation will be less than four hundred fifty dollars a week. So also be maybe half what you're earning. And if you're among the many middle-class uh, employees who are earning more than $50,000 a year, if you lose your job or it's suspended, you're not gonna, uh, you're, you're gonna get the same $450 maximum. 
So this is something that is but you're getting a six hundred dollar federal benefit too. So don't forget to calculate that. All right. A week. All right. So so that's fine. So you're not going to starve, which is good, which is definitely good. Uh, but the bottom line is this is something that is not just somehow uh, uh, targeted at the few or at businesses. There's no doubt that business owners are suffering. There's no doubt that employees of those business owners are suffering. Some people are fortunate. I'm fortunate. Uh, I, uh, I work remotely. Question how much do we law professors work at all, even when we have to come in? Um, uh, so there, so there is, there's certainly some disparity uh, along those lines. But I think that's ultimately going to be the salvation of this, that all voters, whether they're lower middle class voters or, or poor voters or rich voters, everybody wants to get back. Uh, but also people want to be safe. And what's more, if there is a raging epidemic and businesses are open, they may not be open that successfully in many ways. Uh, so uh, so the, the hope is that something is going to be done to, to sharply decrease it. I've been looking at the numbers. I want to see a sharp decline. There hasn't been that, unfortunately. And nobody wants their state, I think, seems to me, to become the next New York or the next Massachusetts. So as I knew would happen, our, uh, our hour has flown by. Uh, I want to thank the people who called in for this webinar, and I certainly hope that all of you stay safe and that none of you are uh, uh, suffering unduly during these very interesting times. Uh, so thank you all very much for join us, uh, joining us, uh, and we can all, uh, from the uh, solitude of our living rooms, applaud Eugene and Harmeet for participating. So thank you. Thank you all. <laughs>